A bill to improve jail conditions is vetoed by Governor Newsom. I am extremely devastated that the governor chose to veto this very, very important measure. I'm Jade Hindman with MG Perez. Maureen is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We take a deep dive into the Bonham Richard fire. Its safety equipment wasn't operational. So 87% of the stations on the ship that had fire hoses weren't serviceable. A look at the world's largest known lithium reserves and hear from local poet Gil Sotu and what inspires his work. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. A bill that would have mandated improvements to health care, safety, and mental health services across California's jails has been vetoed by Governor Gavin Newsom. Assembly Bill 2343, or the Saving Lives in Custody Act, was authored by San Diego Assemblywoman Akila Weber following a scathing audit, which found that the county's jails had some of the highest rates of death in the state. So far this year, 17 people have died while in custody in San Diego County jails, while an 18th person died shortly after his release. Following news of the bill's veto, KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado spoke with Assemblywoman Weber for her response. Here's that conversation. The first thing I would say to the coalitions and also to the family members is thank you so much. Thank you for your continued advocacy. Thank you for your continued fight. Thank you so much for making sure that this is continuing to be at the front uh, and center of people's minds and hearts and not allowing for these issues to be swept under the rug for all of these many, many years. The second thing that I would want to say is that I'm, I'm so sorry. I am extremely devastated, shocked that the governor chose to veto this very, very important measure. And I would also let them know that the fight is not over, that I am with them, my office is with them, and we will continue this fight and continue to reintroduce this bill and continue to make sure that we improve the lives of the people who happen to be in custody, not just in San Diego, but uh, throughout all of California. The audit was very important. The audit revealed a lot of deficiencies in our system. The bill AB 2343 was modeled after what the California audit said that we needed to have. And so I thank them for their advocacy and for their fight and just let them know and reassure them that I am with them, my office is with them, and it is not over. We will continue to introduce bills to make sure that we are saving the lives of those who are in custody. And I don't know if you've had the chance to see or talk to the governor, but what would you say to him now after the deaths continue to plague the jail and now he decided to veto it? 
Well, you know, I would definitely tell him that I'm disappointed. I would let him and his staff know that uh, I believe that they got this wrong. They got this veto wrong. Status quo is not working. Ignoring the recommendations from the audit is not what we need to do to ensure the safety and the lives of the people who are in custody here in California. And I would inform him that we are going to continue in this fight and we can continue with the discussion. But the independent audit showed that there were things that we needed to do now and that there were things that only the legislature can do to improve some of these things. And I know in his statement, he talked about not wanting to add people because it may lengthen the process. Well, I actually disagree with that. You look at the members on the BSCC, none of them have a medical background, none of them have a background in mental health. And yet we know that many of the people in custody are dealing with significant mental health issues. And we need someone with those expertise on this board to help guide the the principles and policies that come out. When we look at all of the different medical conditions, we have a fentanyl crisis occurring in our jails that are getting worse. We need someone with the medical profession to make sure that the basic policies and standards and procedures that we have in place for people who are, have substance abuse orders and other medical issues are doing it correctly. And if you have those people on the board, it doesn't slow down the process. It can actually speed it up because you have that voice of expertise there. Now that the bill's been vetoed, what are the next steps for trying to improve conditions within the county jails? Well, I think at least in San Diego County, the audit um, started to change some things. And one of the great things about actually putting it into legislation is that um, you can never, you can't go back. You can't start to slide on certain things that you had introduced. Um, And it was something that would apply up and down the state. But I think that at least on a local level, um, it has shown a light to some of the um, conditions and some of the issues that need to be fixed. And so, you know, working with the county and the board of supervisors and also the sheriff's department, um, there are some things that have been put in place and we can continue to work on putting more things in place, more funding, more resources. Um, but again, you know, we will be reintroducing this bill, this concept. Um, I am very committed to it. The entire San Diego Democratic delegation is committed to it. Our legislative delegation is committed to it. And, and we will continue to, to show the governor and his team why the internal audit was correct and why we need to listen and take heed to the things that they have said, because unfortunately, we're dealing with people's lives and we are continuing to lose a lot more lives every year, every time that we don't take action. What conversations are you having with the sheriff's department on on making improvements? And I want to add to that, uh, how will that change now considering this veto? Well, you know, it's interesting. I I did meet with the the sheriff yesterday um, because of the increased deaths uh, this year to figure out what is going on. Um, I also met yesterday, surprisingly enough, with, uh, with, the, with the coalition, with members of the coalition to, to talk about some of their other concerns outside of what AB 2343 had said. And so I don't want anyone to start to get comfortable and say, okay, well, now we don't need to do anything because it was vetoed, because this issue is not going away, lives are still being lost. And this is something that the coalition, um, uh, the Racial Justice Coalition has agreed to continue to fight for. It is something that, like I said, the California Legislative Democratic Coalition uh, has continued to fight fight for. We will continue to fight for that in the future. And so, you know, 
every time there's a death, I get notified, uh, as, as do most of the people in the San Diego community. And so just because it was vetoed does not mean that uh, people don't need to continue to work internally to fix the problems here to save lives. That was KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado speaking with Assemblywoman Akila Weber. As you can imagine, the failure of the bill to garner the governor's signature came as a great disappointment to advocates of incarcerated individuals who have long sought to improve conditions within local jails. One such group is the North County Equity and Justice Coalition, which sponsored the bill. I'm joined now by co-founder Yusuf Miller. Yusuf, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Jade. First off, what's your reaction to the governor's veto of this bill? Uh, It felt like a a kick to the stomach, really. It it was so disappointing. I saw the bill sailing through as a common sense bill and for it to be rejected. It felt like a kick to the stomach to me as an activist and someone who has been working on it since it was introduced. But to the families, it was absolutely devastating. And that's where I was going next here. I mean, what are you hearing from the family members of those currently incarcerated, as well as members of the coalition? Basically, they felt like everything that we've done was worthless. It had no impact. And I try to convince them, and we have convinced them, all of us, talking to the family members and other family members talking to one another, stay in the fight. Don't let this heartbreak set you back too far that you're not involved in this activism. And and it has worked bringing them back to the fold. Uh, The governor's veto message of the bill stated that adding an additional member to the board of state and community corrections could cause the board to not work in a timely manner. What's your response to that? That makes absolutely no sense to me and anyone else that is either an activist or a family member that two more people, a medical professional and a mental health professional, will slow and impede progress. That makes no sense. That makes them 15, a 15 board staff where we have staffs that are 20 and 30 around and they are working just fine. So what I say to that is that we are talking two staff positions, but is Paul Silva's life? worth two staff positions? Is Elisa Cerna's life worth two staff positions? Gilbert Gill, Kevin Mills, Omar Arroyo, Matthew Settles, Dennis Carolina. It goes on and on and on. Worth two staff seats? Their families would say yes. And the potential families that are coming up, unfortunately, because we don't have this type of bill that was signed, the families that are coming up would have said those two seats were worth it. Much of the criticism over jail conditions is that they're being used as mental health facilities. While you feel jails could do a better job of providing health care, what's your ideal solution for the mental health care crisis we're in? I mean, what role do jails and law enforcement even play in that? Thank you so much for that question. And what we need to do is to get the badge and the gun out of mental health care. And we need the badge and the gun out of homeless outreach. We need the badge and the gun out of drug addiction. What we need is more compassionate diversion for people to handle their issues that they're going through that put them in a situation in the first place. So if we have at the entry point of the jails and incarceration, someone with medical professional, mental health professionals that can say this person is exhibiting X, Y, Z, they don't belong in jail. They belong in this facility. I personally believe that case would have fixed the death of Gilbert Gill. It would have prevented the death of 
Saxon Rodriguez. It would prevented the death of Paul Silva, Kevin Mills. All of these are examples of mental health people who died in custody where they shouldn't have been in custody in the first place. So we try to integrate mental health in a, in a certain way. It's it's obvious. You need to make sure you have those, those uh, safeguards in the jails, but not as a first step. The first step is to deal with people with proper resources before they get to the state that they need to be incarcerated. And, and are you having conversations with the sheriff's department about what can be done locally? Yes, we are. Matter of fact, we have a meeting with the sheriff, uh, Sheriff Ray, interim Sheriff Ray coming up. That'll be all the allies. That'll be North County Equity and Justice Coalition, the Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego, uh, exhaling injustice, uh, showing up for racial, uh, uh, North County showing up for racial justice and so many more. The NAACP, North County, all of us are coming together to speak with the sheriff about these in custody deaths and what we need to do. And we also monthly show up to the civilian law enforcement review board meetings, which are monthly. And we have the community show up, talk about their complaints, talk about their issues, advise any reforms that we think that they need to have. So those are the two venues, talking to the sheriff's department and complaining to the CLRB, Civilian Law Enforcement Review Board, who are responsible for investigating sheriff complaints. And what would you say to family members of incarcerated individuals who are really discouraged by this bill's veto? I, I would say to keep their head up, to make sure that they they do some self-care. This is very important. It hits them so hard. They're already seeking counseling, many of them. Some of them had to go for extra counseling once this bill was vetoed. But I asked them to take care of themselves, do some self-care. But when you're healthy enough, please, we will be here waiting for you. We will still carry on the fight. And we welcome you back with open arms to show and tell the world that this cannot happen to one more family, not one more family in the city, the nation's greatest city. Not one more family should have to grieve from a county that has the highest in-custody death rate in the state of California. We need to fix this. We are in a crisis, make no doubt about it. I've been speaking with Yusuf Miller, co-founder of the North County Equity and Justice Coalition. Yusuf, thank you for jo joining us. Thank you so much, Jay, for having me. KPBS reached out to the San Diego County Sheriff's Department for comment, who issued the following statement. Independent of any legislative action, the San Diego County Sheriff's Department's ongoing efforts mirror recommendations made by the state audit report on San Diego County jails. We remain steadfast in our commitment to keeping individuals in our custody safe, as well as making improvements and positive changes to continue providing them the highest quality medical and mental health care. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd 
and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Heinemann, and you're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. On Friday, a sailor charged with intentionally setting the fire that destroyed the Navy ship, the USS Bonham Richard, was found not guilty in a military court. But the story doesn't end with the acquittal of seaman recruit Ryan Sawyer Mays. Recent reporting from our next guest has brought to light a flurry of failures, which she says contributed to the destruction of the $1.2 billion ship, resulting in an embarrassment and great expense for the Navy. I'm joined now by Megan Rose, investigative reporter with ProPublica. Megan, welcome to Midday Edition. Hi, thank you for having me. So the fire was ruled arson pretty quick after the ship was destroyed. What was the evidence? You know, it's interesting. There was not any physical evidence that showed there was arson. What the investigators did uh, was kind of controversial. They could not find another source. So they looked for electrical, mechanical, other things that could have caused a fire, and they could not find it. And so they decided that, therefore, it must be arson. Um, but you're not supposed to actually do that. There are rules governing fire investigations. It should have been undetermined. Uh, you can't say, well, we didn't find anything else, so it must be arson. Uh, but that's what they did. And very quickly, it was, like you said, it was within a week. Uh, and they had ruled arson and went with that, even though they had not even finished uh, looking for electrical sources at the time. Your reporting suggests that there was a lot of blame to go around for the 2020 fire that destroyed the ship. Tell us how the finger got pointed so directly at 21-year-old sailor Ryan Mays. Right after the fire, the Navy launched several investigations, two of which were going at the same time. One was a command investigation, which was to look top to bottom what happened here. Another was the criminal investigation to see if anybody was to blame specifically for the fire. And the large command investigation found that there were 34 people who either directly led to the loss of ship or contributed to it, and that included five admirals. But the criminal investigation seemed to operate completely in isolation. They paid no attention to all of these failures that the other investigation was finding. And they very quickly, after they decided it was arson, became pretty preoccupied with Mays, seemingly because he was a little disliked on the ship because he wanted to be a Navy SEAL and had dropped out of the training um, and didn't want to be on the ship. And they latched on to this idea that he didn't, he didn't like where he was assigned. And so therefore he must have torched the ship. And from about a week after the fire, they were laser focused on maze. You wrote that the ship had been a tinderbox at the time of the fire. How so? There's two important ways that it was a tinderbox. First, the ship was undergoing a large overhaul. And so it was filled with contractors doing lots of work. It had been about 18 months that ship had been, you know, getting this maintenance and things were just shoved everywhere. One sailor described the area where the fire started as a junkyard. It was full of forklifts and batteries and hand sanitizers and these giant boxes full of paper. So all these things that are very combustible were shoved all into the ship. And then the other important way was its safety equipment wasn't operational. So 87% of the 
stations on the ship that had fire hoses weren't serviceable. They had only a handful of the 800 um, hand fire extinguishers that they're supposed to have. So this ship just, one, was ready for a fire to happen and then had none of the emergency equipment it needed to put out a fire should that have happened. So we have the problem with the fire safety equipment, but there was also a crucial delay in fighting the fire on the ship. Why? There was. So the command investigation found that there was just a real lack of urgency among the sailors on board when they saw smoke. They're supposed to, as quick as possible, get water on that fire to put it out. But they took at least 10 minutes to even announce the fire over their system to let people know that it was happening. They weren't decked out in the firefighting gears they were supposed to be. They ran down, a few sailors ran down to where um, they had seen the fire, but because of the problems we had just talked about, three of the fire stations were inoperable. They had no hoses or the hoses were cut. And because they didn't have proper equipment on, they had to leave very quickly and couldn't find the fourth station down there, which actually was working. Then they all evacuated the ship and they were on the pier. And it wasn't until the San Diego Fire Department, the local firefighters showed up and got on board. And it was about two hours after they first spotted smoke that anybody put water on the fire and it was not the U.S. Navy. So we got the verdict on Friday. Do we have any idea where the Navy's investigation goes from here? And by the way, what happens to Mays? He said in his very brief written statement Friday, he wants to move on with his life. Yeah, so Mays should um, be out of the Navy soon. And, you know, he I think he is just looking to start over. This has been two years of his life. It started, he was 19 when the fire happened. They threw him in the brig for 55 days. They've kept him on hold. He's been a part of the Navy, but not had a job. It's just really been waiting for this to be resolved. And so he just wants to be able to be free and do what he wants and move and start over and not have this associated with him. As far as the Navy's investigation, I don't know if they go anywhere else from here. They did this very large command investigation that held people responsible on the leadership side, you know, at least said that they were responsible. And I don't know if they're going to rule the fire any differently than what it has been as an arson, or if it's just this is the end. I don't know where it goes from here. Has there been any significant changes uh, to prevent something like this from happening again? So the Navy has said that it has made some changes. They have instituted random safety checks for ships and maintenance, like the Bonhomer Shard was, where they will just show up unannounced and see if all their fire equipment is working like it's supposed to. So hopefully you would not have a situation where 87% of your hoses don't work. They've also... Um, are trying to encourage commanders to feel free to raise their voice and say that there's problems or that things are moving too fast and they need to slow down and and not do a bit of maintenance until they can get their emergency response up to par. But after they lost the USS Miami, a submarine in 2012, they instituted an entire new fire safety manual and investigators found that that was really just a paper fix. So I think time will tell if these new changes actually make a difference. I've been speaking with Megan Rose, investigative reporter for ProPublica. Megan, thank you. Thank you very much.
Lithium Valley, that's what many are calling Imperial County in the southeastern corner of California. While no lithium is being produced commercially there yet, it is home to one of the world's largest known lithium reserves. Lithium is a key ingredient for electrical batteries. KQED's Maddie Bolaño spoke with the Desert Sun's environmental reporter Janet Wilson about this needed resource. So what makes Imperial County such an important piece of this puzzle in the lithium marketplace? So the California desert, including Imperial Valley, has many natural geographic oddities and wonders. And one of those is in a series of faults off the San Andreas Fault, long, long time ago, this rich geothermal brine was created uh, about two miles underground. And so oil uh, companies, or an oil company first explored it, I think back in the 1950s, didn't strike pay dirt on that, but they did realize this very scalding hot brine could be pumped up to the surface and used for actually much cleaner power plants than uh, coal or gas. So there's about a dozen of these geothermal power plants now huffing and puffing along the southern end of the Salton Sea, which is actually the largest water body in California, not Lake Tahoe. (laughs) So they have long pumped this brine waste once they've created steam off of it back underground uh, to replenish the reserve. But they discovered about 10 years ago, folks started realizing that uh, this lithium, this salty mineral in this gritty brine could actually be a key ingredient into all these different products. So it used to be worth pennies on the dollar. Spot prices have just soared largely due to China. And yes, there are now three companies working hard to figure out how to best extract the lithium, and potentially some other critical minerals from this soupy hot brine. What about environmental concerns for lithium extraction? So I'm just starting to delve into that. And a colleague is also working with me. For starters, you're not scraping, you're not doing, you know, hard rock mining. So You don't have as large of a footprint in terms of habitat. But that said, um, hydrogen sulfide, lead, other potentially dangerous contaminants can be and are contained in this brine. So if any of that gets out into the atmosphere, it could be quite dangerous for um, nearby communities, workers, etc., The developers, the would-be producers say they've got closed loop systems that have been perfected over the decades in terms of geothermal extraction. But, you know, there are some releases from these existing power plants in terms of emissions, in terms of air pollution. Is there a timeline on when we might actually see production begin there? One of the company's energy source that has been the most out in front was supposed to finally start construction of a lithium separation facility. They have an existing geothermal brine facility. So the idea is to co-locate these things, to have them right next door to each other. They were supposed to start this month. They've pushed that back to next month. But everybody's saying it's likely at least two years before you have full commercial production of lithium. Do local officials feel like this could be a boom for a region? It sounds like it has a lot of support, but do these local officials have their own concerns about the attention the county might be getting? 
They are, I would say, ecstatic. Uh, this is a poor county. It has high unemployment. It is largely dependent on farming by, uh, by about nearly 400 farmers who depend on Colorado River water, which is, we know, is fast diminishing. So county officials, the county supervisors uh, have been pushing incredibly hard to get help and attention to kickstart this industry and brought together some pretty interesting coalitions to try and make that happen. That was the Desert Sun's environmental reporter, Janet Wilson, speaking with KQED's Maddie Bolaños. A youth boxing program in Vista got displaced from their gym last year, but that didn't stop the organizer who decided to build the gym in his backyard. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne tells us how the organization is helping a group of kids become champions inside and outside the boxing ring. As you walk into Rudy Moreno's backyard in Vista, you hear the sound of gloves striking punching bags. Most of his yard is taken up by a large tent filled with young and aspiring boxers. It's part of a nonprofit he started called Hero Inc., helping everyone reach opportunity. I have a motto, which is, which is um, learn, grow, and lead. Okay, So each one of these kids, they learn something, then they become leaders and they teach others, and then they just grow from there. Moreno used to teach in a bigger space. But last year, the program was displaced to make way for a new residential development. We lost our, our, our big facility that we had off of North Santa Fe. Uh, so we put, we put our minds together, we put our money together because it was pricey. Um, and we decided, you know what, we have the space in our backyard. Um, why don't we just construct something here? Moreno built a gym in his very own backyard because of the benefits boxing brought to the community. A physical activity, you know, helps you mentally and physically. Um, and not only do I want to create champions in the ring, but I want to create champions outside of the ring as well. That way they become uh, productive uh, citizens. Boxing helped Moreno stay out of trouble while growing up in Vista. He went on to join the Air Force, serving for 20 years. After retirement, the sport helped him recover from the effects of PTSD. And there was a time that my body just started falling apart, basically, after retirement. Uh, I guess because I wasn't physically active anymore. Now, Moreno gives back to his hometown with boxing through his organization, working with kids like Alina Torres. I think it helped me, like, not to get picked on. And, like, it's just because I'm small doesn't mean I can't do anything. She's the only girl in the group. She's won national titles and state championships that she hopes will keep stacking up. I want to take it to at least um, the Olympics to where I get top and even maybe professional. 17-year-old Franklin Garcia says boxing has kept him from hanging out with the wrong crowds. Like there's other sports kids can do, you know, not just boxing. There's other sports and I encourage kids to do sports, you know, instead of out there being in the streets, do sports and it's, it's good for your health, you know. Boxing also inspired him to join his school's cross-country team. He hopes to go to a four-year university and continue boxing. Because country, then boxing, you know, school, and I just hope to be someone big, you know, be one of the big, big top fighters. Victor Villagomez, or Tony Boy, is Moreno's youngest competitor at 10 years old. It helped me by getting confident 
and um, building more strength to my mind and to my body. Like the rest of the boxers, Tony Boy has big goals in mind. What I want to do is be a pro so I can make a career for myself. So it could be successful. I mean successful. What brings me joy is seeing their expressions. You know, when we go to a national tournament and they win a, you know, a, a, a national tournament or even local tournaments, just seeing them win. You know, they know that the hard work that they put, they, they've been putting in at the gym is, is paying off. Moreno's backyard boxing program is temporary. He hopes to get a bigger place with more sports and services for the community. Other sports, fitness, you know, basketball, football. Um, I would like my facility to have a learning resource center, a computer lab where kids can come and do their homework and then participate in an activity. Until then, Moreno's backyard is open until the sun goes down to help kids reach new opportunities. Oh, you always want to help that one person up so that way they can help the next person. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. Many parents this fall experienced the emotions of sending their firstborn child off to college. That just happened for Adolfo Guzman Lopez, who's covered higher education for years at KPCC in Los Angeles. Turns out reporters are people too. So when his own son moved into a freshman dorm this month, Adolfo was not prepared for the reaction he'd have. Time has gone by way too quick. Hi. My name is Jordan, and I'm going to say a really sad story that my violin teacher told us. That's my son, my first child, when he was eight years old. This is him a few weeks ago. Hello, this is Jordan Guzman. I'm in the car with my father, Adolfo Guzman Lopez. We are en route to my college orientation. Oof. So many feelings on that car ride. But I didn't have words or phrases to describe them, just images. His favorite Mr. Octopus toy when he was a newborn, me sitting in a camping chair behind the Little League backstop watching him take pitches. I feel like it's the end of something for me and him. But to cut down the anxiety, I tell myself it's also the beginning. Of what? I don't really know. So I started talking to other fathers of firstborn sons. When I sent my son off to college, I think I might have actually been clinically depressed. I just felt so uh, sad, and I missed him so much. Robin Perry says that after a few weeks, an evolution in their relationship began to take hold. And not merely just sort of a father-son relationship, but it evolved into a more of a a friendship, more of a advisor-type uh, relationship. Some fathers may feel they don't understand all that's involved in college, finances, career planning, social life, and they may say, son, I can't help you with that. Derek Broom says fathers can still show up in other important ways. He's a professor of Africana Studies and Sociology at the University of Tennessee. And I think one of the things that really gets left out of the discussion is the non-material resources and support that fathers can offer, such as uh, a confidant, uh, a guiding voice, uh, a, a supporter in terms of social-emotional well-being. 
Broom says community groups and educational institutions should do more outreach to fathers, because doing so may help turn around a troubling trend. There's a drop in the proportion of males enrolling in college, and those who do struggle to reach graduation day. What does father-first son support look like now? I paid a visit to the Bradford family in L.A.'s View Park neighborhood to find out. Hello, how are you? All right, just um, <laughs> looking at uh, UC Berkeley Unit 3 housing. <laughs> Lawrence Bradford is watching a dorm orientation video on YouTube. You should also know this. He's a community college admissions administrator. And that's reflected in what his son Miles says his dad has been telling him the last few weeks. I think he's, you know, he's just been reinforcing everything he's been telling me for the past, what, uh, 17 years. Uh, stuff like hard work, obviously, keep, keep going hard. Uh, college is a little different, so, you, I mean, I just got to keep going harder. His dad also reminded him what it means to be a young black male around the police, in parties with alcohol, and while dating. Lawrence Bradford says he did not have this kind of conversation with his father. I lost my dad when I was 12. My dad didn't get a chance to show me how to shave. My dad, you know, wasn't there to see me in my athletic events. There was one thing I did not hear from Lawrence and his son Miles. What will their future relationship look and sound like? Maybe it was the pressure of getting ready for that long drive to Berkeley. Which brings me back to my car ride with my son Jordan to his college orientation. I told him, I'm afraid of the unknown. What will the relationship between him and me be like? Who's going to support me? I think I'm confident that it'll, it'll be all right. You know, that it'll, I think he'll definitely be very supportive. And I think that'll play a role in, you know, keeping, keeping us close. Good. Maybe, maybe uh, I'll, I'll tap into your confidence then. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Heinemann, and you're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. The San Diego Writers Festival is coming up this Saturday. The free one-day event celebrates the power of writing and storytelling. There is a lineup of local literary talent leading workshops and panel discussions. That includes poet Gil Sotu. He is a two-time slam poetry champion, a commissioned playwright with the Old Globe and the La Jolla Playhouse, and he'll be leading a workshop on Saturday about unlocking creativity and finding your voice. KPBS's Andrew Bowen recently spoke with Gil Sotu. He started by asking about barriers to creativity. It's judgment. It's your own self-judgment. It's, it's the comparison to other people. I mean, that's kind of our, our plight with a lot of things in our life. But, uh, you know, you see an amazing artist and you think that you can't do that. But, like, my philosophy is that creativity is a combination of your inspirations and your experiences. And then it's filtered through your skill sets. So no one can teach you your inspiration. That's an individual thing. And your inspirations can't be wrong. 
No one can teach you your experiences because those are just your unique experiences and your experiences can't be wrong. So it's just trying to enhance your skill set. And that's what a teacher can do so that the, the idea, the creative idea that you have in your head matches what you put out into the world. But see, a lot of people get stuck on their experiences or their inspiration or whatever that they want to do. They think that that is not good enough. And it's not, it's just not true. You know, you got to push past that and, and see what uh, comes out. And for the most part, what you have in your head is not going to be what's going to come out anyway, because, uh, you know, when you, once you start creating and you start editing, then uh, a whole other world starts to, to come to fruition. One of the things that you've talked about is being able to find the poetry or the creativity in the routine. Can you give us some examples mm-hmm. of that? Sure, sure, sure. You know, when you go to a convenience store and uh, a young woman or whoever has like uh, amazingly painted and done up nails and what's the story behind that? What is what is she trying to say? You know, when you when you play with a kid and um, you throw them in the air, you know, what's that experience like for them? You know, it's just taking it a step beyond. Often when I used to watch the old gangster movies and you see the guys who protect the boss, I, I think about what's their life after that when they go home. Is their wife mad that they had to stay that extra hour to get into that gunfight and he didn't take out the trash? You know, <laughs> it's like you're you're thinking, uh, uh, you're you're pushing things beyond the norm, and that's where creativity comes. Is and then uh, another beautiful thing that you can do is you're taking these things that are beyond the surface, and then if you can combine that with something else. And, and com- compare and contrast that with something else that's a little bit beyond the surface. Then you're starting to say something. You're starting to form your opinion about the world and have your voice. Yeah. So that's taking the ordinary and, and really making it extraordinary just by examining it with a creative eye. I think there's a real vulnerability in sharing something that you've created, that you've poured your soul into. Do you find that people you work with are sometimes hesitant to share something that they've written? Oh, all the time. Like I can even be hesitant to share something that I've I've wrote because, you know, it's very vulnerable. Even if we're if I give everybody the same writing prompt and and I tell a room full of people who identify as writers to read what they wrote, you're going to get uh more crickets than you get hands in the air to ask uh to read. Uh there's a there's just a vulnerability of of uh, showing your raw self, not your polished, you know, social media self, but showing your uh, your your raw self, like a, on a quick ride or, or something like that. Um, but I always tell my students, like, all we're asking in this class is for you to be unapologetically you, you know, and that's a scary proposition, but it's one that needs to be a message. I feel needs to be put out there because. Uh, it, I've traveled around this world and I've just noticed that people really just want to be heard. Even if it's just by one other person or a a, a couple of people, not everybody wants to be a superstar, but I think everybody wants to be heard and understood, you know, and uh, giving them little ways to do that, I think is a beautiful thing in, uh, in and of itself. You are the poet in residence for the Writers' Festival. You're a Grand Slam poetry champion. You have a book of poetry coming out next year. It seems fitting to ask if you could read one of your poems for us. Could you do that? 
<laughs> yes. Uh, since you hyped me up, uh, I, I, I will no doubt do that. Um, this is from my book, upcoming book. It's called um, Equally Strange, Beautifully Different. And this poem is called The Race. When you set out to make a difference, you are bound by red tape and asked to awkwardly run a race where it feels like the only cheering happens when you appear to be failing. When you set out to make a difference, the announcer mispronounces your name. He speaks as if you have already lost. But each lap you complete, someone smiles in recognition. Another begins running clumsily behind you, even more infused with inspiration without them even realizing it. You are making a difference, even if each step you attempt does not feel different, even if they inspect and respect your degrees before they do your heart or what you're trying to do for them or the path you are trying to clear. Do not mistake a hard road for one void of value. You are making a difference. You are becoming the difference. How wonderful is it to know that at the end of this race, the trail of light you leave behind will illuminate a path for those coming after you. That is how decency works. That is how the sun works. That is how love works. Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. You'll be leading a workshop at the Writers Festival on Saturday about creativity and finding your voice. And I wonder, how did you find your voice as a poet? Um, you have to really input different influences uh, all the time. So you can't continue to listen to the same type of thought. Um, the same type of speakers, the same type of humans. You have to really get out into the world and experience it and, and open yourself up to creativity. One of the, the biggest blessings that I've ever uh, got to experience is A, being in the Navy and traveling. And then I worked for a travel agency for years and got to travel and to get to really speak to different people from other nationalities. We are blessed here in San Diego that we are definitely a melting pot and very diverse here in San Diego. Um, but, you know, you got to get out of your neighborhood. Um, and so the more that you can get around just different types of people and thinkers and everything, then the more uh, you can find your own unique uh, and distinct voice. I've been speaking with San Diego Writers Festival poet in residence, Gil Sotu. Gil, thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for having me. The San Diego Writers Festival is happening this Saturday, October 8th, from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Coronado Public Library. More information is on our website.